Not long ago, Dictionary.com ran an online poll called The Greatest Word of All Time. They asked the question, how could you possibly choose one single word as the greatest of all time? But if you had to answer, what word would you choose? Which English word is most objectively important, useful, and irreplaceable? What word, if removed from the lexicon, would leave the biggest void? There were a number of runner-ups, but it turned out that the greatest word of all time was love. Love. And of course, long before this poll, Paul said to believers at Corinth, the greatest of these is love, a church that was tempted to get sidetracked on who had what gifts, to follow after different men, to disregard the needs of brothers and sisters in Christ. The greatest of these is love. And of course, that reflects the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ in John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Well, at the very center of human history stands a cross, the cross of Christ, where the love of God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit was poured out for all the world to see. It is the objective standard of what love looks like and the objective proof that God loves a fallen human race. The cross of Christ established a crossroads for every one of us regarding who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so last time when we were in John 3, we were looking at this crossroads, this crossroads between faith and unbelief, between eternal life on the one hand and condemnation on the other, between light and darkness. It's that stark. And Christ on the cross is right at that crossroads calling us to follow Him and calling us to recognize that if we do not, all is truly lost. We pick up in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. He's had this discussion with Nicodemus. He's now going to move on in his ministry. And we read these words in John 3, 22 and following. After this, Jesus and His disciples went into the Judean countryside, and He remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, remember that means great one, it was a title of great respect for one that was teaching you, he who was with you across the Jordan, that would be Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Remember that uh, at least two of John's own disciples, um, John the apostle and also Andrew, had been disciples of John the Baptist, and they had transferred over to Jesus. Well, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not the anointed one, but I have been sent before him. 
The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, and I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This passage covers quite a bit of ground, but it starts with a context really of petty jealousy in 22 to 27, where John's disciples seem seem to be taking offense that more people are now following after Jesus than after John. Um, But John's attitude is completely different. He conveys joyful uh, joy in honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. We see joyful honor of the Lord, uh, Christ who's above all, who brings heavenly testimony, verses 31 to 34, and who has supreme authority, indeed the authority either to save us and give us eternal life or to judge us and leave us under the wrath of God. So, we're going to look at this text from these four headings, petty jealousy, joyful honor, heavenly testimony, supreme authority, for Christ is above all. So, first consider with me uh, the context in which this discussion arises. It's always helpful when you're trying to make application of Scripture to look at what's actually happening when the words are spoken. One of the great benefits we have to Scripture is we don't just have a a list of, of, uh, of laws or uh, precepts, but we're also given narrative. We're also giving history. We, we see these truths brought uh, to bear in the middle of real-life history, and it helps us understand how they apply to our real-life history. So, we see this petty jealousy. In verse 22, Jesus and His disciples were in the Judean countryside. He remained there with them when He was baptizing. And then there's John also baptizing at Enon near Salem because water was plentiful there. People were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. That's going to be key to us, understanding why this is here. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person can receive, cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Now, the other Gospels pick up the ministry of Jesus after the imprisonment of John the Baptist has already begun. So, John is unique in that he gives us this view into this brief period of time when the ministries of John the Baptist and of Jesus overlap. So, John is baptizing in the region of Samaria at Enon, which means spring, so we're not surprised that there's much water there. And of course, if you're going to baptize, you need water. 
And the discussion between John's disciples and a Jew over purification rites, you remember that the Jews were big about that. Remember when Jesus turned water to wine, those jars of water were for purification. You remember later when Jesus is doing miracles, um, the Jews are upset. Uh, Never mind the miracles, they're upset the disciples aren't washing their hands before they eat. So the the Jews were very big about the ceremonially uh, cleansing. And, And so they're talking about this purification, and, and that led to concern that the one that John had borne witness to, namely Jesus, was baptizing more people than John was. All are going to him. Really a bit of an exaggeration, um, but, but you sense in that kind of the, the hurt feelings, and, um, and we can understand that. They're clearly not happy about the development. They might love Jesus, second, you know, secondhand, John was pointing to him, but, but it's tough on them. This really happens all too commonly in Christianity. J.C. Ryle, a British preacher of 150 years ago, he, by the way, has this excellent uh, expositions on the Gospels, expository thoughts on the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John he gave the most time to. He comments, the spirit exhibited in this complaint is unhappily too common in the churches of Christ. There are never wanting religious professors who care far more for the increase of their own party than for the increase of true Christianity, who cannot rejoice in the spread of religion if it spreads anywhere except within their own pale. He goes on to say, nothing so defiles Christianity and gives the enemies of truth such occasion to blaspheme as jealousy and party spirit among Christians. Wherever there is real grace, We should be ready and willing to acknowledge it, even though it may be outside our own pale. By the way, this is the reason that we pray for other ministries every Sunday morning. There's an objective to that. And I remember when we started that, it was almost shocking to us as a congregation. What, you're praying for that ministry? Wait a minute, they're not within our particular brand. But we did it on purpose because these are real believers, believe the gospel, trust in Jesus, they have the Holy Spirit, we ought to be praying for them. In fact, the Bible says we're to pray for all men, as well as for all that are in authority. In fact, it came right out of that passage that Paul wrote to Timothy. And, and what it does is it opens our heart to other people when we actually are praying for them before the Lord. It's a little harder for us uh, to throw stones and sling mud when when we're actually praying for these people as brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is, this is not a theme confined here uh, just to uh, what the, uh, John the Baptist is teaching his disciples. Jesus himself confronted this spirit among his own disciples. In John 9, John, the writer of our gospel, answered, Master, we saw someone uh, casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. The problem was rife in the church at Corinth. Paul writes to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 1, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or the most spiritual of all, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So he confronts this attitude as evidence not of spiritual maturity, but of actual carnality, living in a fleshly way like you're not even born again. In 1 Corinthians 3, he says, For you are still of the flesh, 
For why, for, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? In contrast to one who's under the control of the Spirit. For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So, so he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He goes on to teach them. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards, that is, managers of the mysteries of God. And then when they compare, you know, we can start comparing ourselves among each other. In a, in a local congregation, there can be jealousies and, and divisions that break out. He says, who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You know, we tend to look at our own strengths and compare them to the weaknesses of others and think that we're somehow great. Um, and, it, and it leads to, that pride leads to division, carnality. Paul reminds believers in Philippi to keep a Christ-centered focus, even when other preachers are using Paul's imprisonment for personal advantage. So this is something Paul is working at practicing as well. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. In other words, Paul, the great missionary, is finally out of the way. Now we can get our, our, you know, build our congregation and our following. Others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? I mean, you would, you would expect him at that point to pray an imprecatory prayer. And he doesn't do it. He says, what then? In other words, it doesn't matter. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I mean, we'd rather have Christ proclaimed in truth, but the fact is, if people find out about Jesus, you know, it's Jesus whom they need, the, the messenger is always suspect. The messenger is always flawed. So Jesus is the one that, that saves. And, you know, you listen to the salvation testimonies of people in our own congregation, and you will be amazed at, at the way God used sometimes the smallest little turn of events, uh, a word spoken, uh, the most unlikely of circumstances to actually turn their heart toward Jesus. Because it's about what God is doing in the people, not what men are doing. And so John the Apostle calls out this selfish pro uh, prominence, desire for prominence. Remember uh, in 3 John 1, 9, we studied this some time ago, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So this whole attitude of, of, of pride and putting ourselves first and comparing ourselves with others, uh, this is actually detracts from giving glory to Christ. So John the Baptist corrects his spirit among his followers, first by reminding them that ministry is a gift from God. It's not a measure of our own superiority. You know, as we enjoy certain blessings from God as a church or as individuals or as families, be very careful about taking credit for it. Because there are plenty of people that, and plenty of churches that are, are better people and better churches than we are that, that aren't enjoying necessarily the same things. These are gifts from God. A person, John says in John 3, 27, cannot receive even one thing 
unless it is given him from heaven. So, for instance, why does one pastor preach to a congregation of 50 and another to a congregation of 500 and another to 5,000? Sometimes it has to do with capacity, but often not so. It has to do with a thousand other things. There are times when a preacher becomes very popular for a time, only to sink into relative obscurity while some other gifted teacher comes on the scene. His health might break, or there might be a conflict, or there might be persecution. All kinds of things can happen that that change up the kind of success, the apparent success that he's enjoying. One servant of the Lord serves into his or her 90s, while another dies of cancer at 35. James, the brother of John, was the first apostle to die, beheaded for Christ, and John, his brother, was the last to die. No matter, both served Jesus faithfully. And those that compare themselves with others are not wise. Just do whatever God has called you to do. It's for God's glory that you serve Christ, not your own glory anyway. It's not about your resume. It's not about your reputation. It's not about what you've achieved. It's not about you're making your mark on the world. It is about Jesus Christ being made great. So when you're tempted to resent the blessings others enjoy rather than being thankful for them, when, when does that happen in your life? Okay. Think, think about those times and remember where that spirit comes from. And in what ways can you turn those occasions into opportunities to bow your heart to the rule of heaven on earth. You know, we're told that the angels rejoice over, over one sinner that repents. That means that, that on any day of the week, any, any week of the year, the angels are rejoicing in heaven because people are getting saved all over the world, uh, all times of day or night, coming to the Lord. I mean, it's no wonder heaven is a joyful place. Okay, let's bring a little heaven on earth. Let's rejoice whenever we see God at work in somebody's life. It doesn't have to be your family. It doesn't have to be even your church. It doesn't, have to be, it doesn't have to be us. It just has to be. And when you see it, rejoice. It's important for us to give God praise for what he's doing in the earth. And, and it doesn't, the center of the earth is not us. The center is Jesus. So John goes on to instruct them on the importance of making much of Christ. In verse 28, he starts to talk about this joyful honor that he's able to give to Christ. You yourself bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist is not jealous of Jesus because John understands that his role all along was to introduce Jesus to the world and to make much of him. When we make much of Jesus, there is no room for jealous envy and party spirit. Wherever selfish ambition shows itself, it obscures the glory of Christ, and and we are all the more unhappy for it. Joy comes from making much of Jesus instead of of ourselves, because that is our God-given purpose. I mean... You know, cars were made to drive. Um, Bicycles were made to ride. 
Um, songs are made to be sung. The, the purpose that we have in life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And, and the more we do that, the happier we are. The more we turn our happiness to be based inward, the more unhappy we are. It's no wonder we're in such an unhappy world because we're so self-focused. It would be downright weird for the best man to be jealous that the bridegroom took off with the bride after the ceremony. Can you imagine that yesterday, at yesterday's wedding? Oh, there goes Nat and Allie. That would be crazy. The best man is there for the sake of the bridegroom. He's there to assist the groom in his marriage to the bride. Well, John's whole ministry was to help people fall in love with Jesus, not himself. But in many a ministry context, it's not clear who's most important and who you're supposed to be in love with. There's far too much talk about us, our brand, our success, our goals, and far too many far too little made of Christ. Too much focus on making your brand famous, and you'll end up producing a poison form of Christianity, not the real thing. And it's happened throughout history. So we need to get the focus right. Make the big things big, keep the small things small, and ignore what's irrelevant, all as measured by God's Word. And watch out for the undue influence of tradition or trend. Look out for too much I and we and our vision instead of God and Christ and scriptural truth. He must increase. I must decrease. Write it on your mirror and write it on your heart. And preach it to your ego and teach it to your children and your students. It's not about how distinctive we are compared to some other church or ministry or some other believer. It's about how amazing Christ is. So in what ways do you remind yourself of what God's purpose is for you in this life? It's easy to get sidetracked with all the, you know, all the logistics and all the bills and and all the difficulties, and to forget why you're even doing what you're doing, why you're even alive. So how has doing so, keeping your purpose in mind, your God-given purpose, helped you keep your attitude right when things don't seem to be going well for you? You know, there are believers in our congregation who have suffered much, and you talk, talk to them, talk to them about how God has sustained them, and you will find this common thread. There's a Christ focus. There, there's a submission to the will of heaven versus just my own plans. And when's the last time you joyfully turned someone's attention to Jesus Christ? You know, it's so easy to start wrangling about politics or about denominations or about interpretations or, or this, that, and the other, and instead of turning attention to Jesus and in what ways can you make more of Jesus Christ in your walk and talk? Like, what would, that, what would that require of you? If Jesus were to be more than just a theoretical center of your life, what if you made him the center? In other words, where you're, you're thinking about him enough that you actually talk about him. 
and that you're rejoicing in him and that 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 comes out when you interface with other people. It comes out. It's not like you say, okay, now I've got to remember to talk about Jesus. It's you talk about Jesus because you're already thinking about him. You're, you're, you already love him, and it, and it just comes out. That, that means this isn't something you just do, you know, with your little reminder, your three-by-five card that reminds you, or on your phone, a little reminder, talk about Jesus, but, but it means that you've already been meditating on him. You've already been expressing your thanks to him. You're already in that mode so that when you interact with people, it's just natural for you to talk about him. And there's a reason we ought to be talking about him, because he's bringing to the table what nobody else uh, can bring. And we learn in verses 31 to 34, there's a heavenly testimony that Jesus brings. This is the reason that, that he uh, has to be above all is because he's unique in the testimony that he brings. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. So you've got lots of, you've got lots of, of prophets and, and people that are speaking from just a human perspective. Here's the God-man. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Think about it. You and I, when we talk about heaven, we have to talk about it secondhand. We have to talk about it in faith as, as to what God has revealed in his word. We haven't actually seen it with our own eyes. Jesus spent eternity there. Jesus speaks about what he knows. He's talking about his hometown, if you will, the, the capital of the universe. Jesus deserves preeminence because he has come from heaven and heaven rules over the earth. His supremacy is intrinsic to his identity as a beloved son of God in whom God the Father said he's well pleased. And as the son of man that Daniel talks about in Daniel 7, to whom the ancient of days has given judgment at the end of the age and an everlasting kingdom of the saints. His testimony is from firsthand experience of heaven and its realities. As the incarnate son come from heaven, he has seen and heard what is there. I mean, it's one thing to study, like those of you going to London, it's one thing to study about London and where we're going to go, you know, you know, what it's going to be like. It's another thing to talk to someone who actually lives there. And when you get there, to have that person guide you versus just having to go by, you know, by, by all the schedules and lists, but to have that person who knows the place guide you is, is something else. The same with Jesus. It's not academic theory or philosophical speculation or wishful thinking that he delivers to us. He delivers us firsthand testimony. But sadly, the majority... John says, refuse to believe what Christ Jesus bore witness to. Even those whose reputation was loyalty to the Scriptures and separation from the world, they rejected his teaching. Remember Jesus' words to Nicodemus earlier in this chapter? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you, plural, talking about Nicodemus and and the Sanhedrin, the, the Pharisees that were the, the party he was joined to, you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, because you've been talking about the effect of the Spirit in a person's life, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things, things you could not possibly know by observation? You would have to take it on faith from somebody who has seen it. John three thirty three to 34 
The text goes on, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Those who receive the firsthand testimony of Jesus... They believe that what Jesus said is actually true. They show that they hold Jesus to be the Messiah that God promised throughout the centuries in the Old Testament prophets. In other words, they see Jesus as proof that God has made good on His promises, that God is true and reliable. If Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah, Son of God, in the words He speaks are the words of God. In fact, he says as much in John 5. He says, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen. But you do not have his word abiding in you because you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the Scriptures, the words of God, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. That life, that life comes through the Holy Spirit that the Lord Jesus gives. Our text says, second part of verse 34, he gives the Spirit without measure. This is what causes a person to be born again. This is what brings life to a person and changes him from the inside out. This is the secret that Nicodemus had been longing to know. How can one be born again from above by the Spirit and thus experience the kingdom of God? Here's how. Jesus gives the Spirit. It's not that you're seeking the Spirit. It's that Jesus gives the Spirit. He gives the Spirit to all who are trusting in Him. In fact, He predicted this in John 7 on the last day of the feast, the great day Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If you thirst for, if you desire what Jesus is offering, come. By the way, if you don't come, it's because you don't want it. The problem is not intellect. The problem is at the level of desire. So he says, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, you're you're trusting into Jesus, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart. So we're talking about what's on the inside will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus had work to do on the cross. Jesus had to rise from the dead. Before the Spirit is given to all who believe in Him. Now, here's the stark difference between religion and true Christianity. Christ gives life to those who belong to Him through faith. The Holy Spirit indwells them. The way way this is described historically is the life of God in the soul of man. The life of God in the soul of man. And that produces a transformation. That transformation that that happens in a person who's truly born again can't be attributed to personal ability or, or special formulas and techniques or denominational loyalty or ceremonial rituals. 
The change is a God thing. He gets the glory for how the person changes, not just that the person changes. There's, there's a quality to this eternal life. It, it's a quality that is God-like. It, it reflects the very character of God. It's not uncommon for those devoted to their particular brand of Christianity to be utterly blind to the power and presence of God, along with being blind to the evidence of the Spirit's work in the lives of people. And in Christ's day, that the dominant, most looked-up-to religious practitioners of the day were notorious for this, the Pharisees. They could not appreciate the mighty works of Jesus. They were too obsessed with whether or not the disciples washed their hands. They tied their spices, but they ignored the weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness. Why? Because you can't measure those. You can't quantify those. You can't put those into a formula. That's something that flows from who a person is, and they couldn't do anything to change that. All they could do is multiply rules. All they could do is establish protocol and codes. And Jesus says of them, you're clean on the outside and you're filthy on the inside. You're like whitewashed tombs. You're sparkling houses of death. So in what ways have you taken seriously the testimony of Jesus Christ? what he's given, that testimony that he's given to the human race. Have you actually taken Jesus seriously? You might have lots of excuses for rejecting Christianity, but what is your excuse for rejecting Jesus? Why won't you listen to him? In all those discussions, there's so many red herrings, but what are you doing with Jesus? And whom do you know if you are a believer, that needs you to share Jesus' testimony with them. I mean, how are people supposed to know Jesus' testimony if they've never heard it? He's given you and me the job of passing that testimony on. That's, that's why we're on the planet. So let's give people a chance to hear. And then finally, in verses 35 to 36, we see supreme authority. For the Father, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God the Father loves God the Son. He's the anointed king of the forever kingdom, according to Psalm 2. And there, God the Father put the anointed Son over everything. Colossians 1.16 says it this way, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, so the material world and the spiritual world, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So the reality is you and I can't truly love God without loving Christ. In John 5, Jesus says, the Father loves the Son, and has shown him all that he himself is doing. 
And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So a person may say he loves God, but if he doesn't love Jesus, he doesn't love God. That's why John 3.36 contrasts whoever believes in the Son and whoever does not obey the Son. Whoever believes into Jesus, and and that's the, the language conveys this kind of leaning into Him, has eternal life here and now, extending into forever. Whoever does not obey Him shall not experience life at all. The wrath of God, every human but Jesus deserves, remains on us. The only escape from the judgment of God is to transfer the full weight of our trust into the Son of God. To believe into the Son is to trust Him enough to submit to Him and follow Him. And that's why you have the link between believing and obeying. According to Jesus, whoever wants to be His disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Him. So saving faith in Jesus does not continue to resist Jesus. John's not saying that a follower of Jesus stops sinning altogether in his life, but that the desire of his heart and the pattern of his life is to obey the Lord and Savior in whom he put his trust. Look, when when somebody you trust tells you something, you go with it. If you don't go with it, it's because you don't trust the person enough to go with it. So if you trust Jesus, go with what he's told you. Trust him. Lean into that. Be obedient to how he's directing. So since Christ is above all, how are you personally acknowledging that he rules all things? I mean, you can look at this broadly with what's happening in the world and recognizing he's sovereign over all and that you don't have to worry, or you can look at it very narrowly in your own life and your own family and ask the question, are you yielding to his authority in your life? And what other idols compete with your trust in Christ? or your love for Christ, or your obedience to Him? What's getting in the way of of your having Christ rule your life? And then what life from God are you experiencing right now? What What do you see in your life that would indicate to you that you actually have life from the Spirit that Christ gives to those who believe in Him? The key to everything is gladly acknowledging that Christ is above all. It helps us abandon our petty jealousy. We, we give him, therefore, joyful honor. We heed his heavenly testimony as the only way to be rescued from our sin and death, and we bow to his supreme authority. We give him our full allegiance. We align ourselves with his eternal kingdom, for he is Christ above all. Let's bow for prayer. Father, now you know our hearts and you know our lives and you know that while we're gathered here and for good reason, Lord, we are fickle as the wind in our loyalties. Uh, We find it difficult to be faithful in our following you. And we know that, that among us are those who have yet to actually trust you for who you are. And so, God, I pray that your spirit would be at work in our own hearts that cause us to bow the knee 
to trust in Jesus, to, to make him preeminent in our lives. Lord, guard us from the side paths. Guard us from the pride and the, the jealousies. Guard us from making little things big and thus making big things little. Lord, help the focus that, that we have and that we talk about and that we live for to be on Jesus, not on ourselves, that he might receive the glory that he deserves as our Savior and sacrifice and Lord. For it's in his name we pray.